information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, good morning. Welcome to this episode of uh, Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about insulins and diabetes and mainly all the insulins there are since there's now 50 million of them it seems like so today joining me again is uh the davis holiday one of our air care flight nurses prized primarily on air care four out of greenwood and then uh my old partner and the mark randall the redhead of the crew um was 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 was. a lot of gray in my lap the other day Anyway, one of our longtime flight nurses here at AirCare. So welcome, guys. Glad you'll have her here this morning. So getting into it with insulin. So I pulled this straight out of Oxford Dictionary, which is maybe not the best place to do it, but it's pretty simplified when you break down to what insulin is. So it's a hormone produced in the pancreas um, by the isolates of the Langerhans. 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 I want to make sure I get that German right. I know know you're particular about it. Well, you know. Uh, which regulates the amount of glucose in the blood. The lack of insulin is ca- can cause diabetes. Okay, So when we talk about insulin, a lot of us think of immediately come to my head is DKA. Um, that's what I think of most of anything else. But people are on insulin every day. They're on sliding scales, and there's all kinds of different things that make insulin complicated. So one dose of insulin for me may be totally different than a dose for Davis, which may be totally different than a dose for Mark. So, when y'all think of insulin, what do you think of? Uh, well, I just think of, you know, people that are having to manage their sugars at their house, you know, frequent glucose checks and having to figure out what levels work for you and which insulin works for you best and when you got to eat compared to when you take your medicine and what happens when you don't eat. And, um, you know, it's just a management of, of all their care put together. Yeah, I've seen insulin changed significantly through the years my dad was a very brittle diabetic and we started off with the old lente and ultra lente and then whether it was porcine or bovine and origin and everything else then through the the recombinant technology nph and regular now we're into all these uh, insulin analogs Uh, one thing i remember is not only is your pancreas not producing enough insulin some people's bodies are resistant to even all the different uh, injectable or engineered insulins some people are incredibly sensitive to it Um, i seem to be sensitive to the regular insulins i'm diabetic for those who don't know, <laughs> found out the hard way four years ago. But I am sensitive to the regular insulin and regular insulin, uh, Novolog, Hemolinar, et cetera. But I'm resistant to the long-acting insulins. So uh, Dr. Sebaust and I do a lot of tweaking and juggling and Myself and Rick Carlton are about the only two that I know that work a steady night shift 
life and insulin-dependent diabetic, which throws another curveball into the whole mix. It's all about management. When I think of a diabetic, everything is specific to that person. Everybody's different. Every pancreas is different. Everybody's cardiac workload's different. Everybody's metabolism's different. You think about type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is typically autoimmune-driven. It's something you're born with. Usually kids find out about it more often than not. And they're just, they literally can't handle it. Type 2, I think of as a lot of the populace we see, which is overweight, or they've had a poor um, diet history, or poor, been worked a little bit too hard through life, and it's, or their body just can't keep up. It's just over, over time, they're, hey, I've, I've used all the fun stuff I had. I'll pick on Mark. He used to eat cupcakes every time that a certain comp spec would cook them. Hey, they're good. Yeah. But, you know, somebody else might eat half the tray. Over time, your body can't compensate for that. You think that brings up right after I got discharged from the hospital, that comp spec made a pot or a pan of re- homemade Reese cups and called me and said, come get these. I'm like, you realize I just left the hospital with DKA, right? She's like, you got a bottle of insulin? Better living through chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true, but it's not the right way to do it. No, it's not. It's not at all. So let's talk about the regular insulin, the short acting, the stuff that most of us give all the time for DKA, trying to close the gap or what have you. Do y'all see a lot of patients that are on regular insulin these days, or is it more going to the analogs and the engineered insulins? Uh, it's 50-50, really. I mean, you go through and you see a history of diabetes, and it's a, it's a, you know, you, you never know what they're going to be on. You get to that second page in their med list, and sometimes it's it's regular insulin, sometimes it's not. Um, you know, for me, it's really you just have to get a good history on these folks, figure out what they're on, but it's it's – like what we've already said, it's what their body can handle, right? It's what uh, what they like, really. And tagging on that, how often do you see these med lists that are printed out? Oh, this is everything that's been prescribed for two years. Yeah. So when we're reading it, you read this one and you read this one and you read this one, and it, their doctor has been juggling trying to figure out which one works for them. Um, another clue... And we're not supposed to do a wallet biopsy, but if you do a wallet biopsy, it can clue you in. These newer analogs are more expensive. Um, the newer uh, insulins that are used in the type 2 situations are crazy expensive. So if you see somebody with no insurance or minimal insurance, you can infer they're probably on NPH and regular because it's cheaper you know you can go to walmart even without a prescription and get a vial of humulin r for 25 bucks so and you a lot of people have that also baseline of short acting insulin that's their backup so for example you may be on some fancy i I like to call them engineered engineered insulin that's long acting or what have you and then they may have a prescription, and it'll, it'll print out in the med list of their own uh, regular humulin R or something. 
and you're like, all right, well, great, they're on human. No, that's only when they need it or when they go to a birthday party and eat the entire coconut cake or what have you. And they're on, oh, I'll just take two units because it only takes two units. So when you think about dosing on these patients, it's important to know, Davis, to your point about knowing a really good history of what these patients can take. So for me, a lot of times I think of the hyperkalemic patient. So you're going to give them a Rubens, right? Well, standard for us is 10 units of insulin. Hey, their K is, I don't know, we'll say it's nine because that's a fun number we've had before. And you're, all right, hey, look, they need a Rubens right now. They need 10 units of insulin. Knowing where that patient is, well, they're hyperkalemic. Are they hyperkalemic because they overdose on their chloricon? Or are they hyperkalemic because they're in renal failure or whatever? But also knowing if they're a brittle diabetic and that two units of insulin, normally IV or even sub-Q, will drop their sugar 100 points in 30 minutes. All right, I just totally mess with their entire metabolism, and I'm about to have to hang a D10 infusion for them to maintenance because otherwise they're going to crash on me. Is that something... Now, uh, granted, if they have a K of nine, are they probably obtunded? You know, I would expect them. I would, I would kind of hope they were because about what's going to happen to them um, from resuscitative or ICU level standpoint. But do you, if you can ask the family those questions or if they have that wonderful book that some diabetics keep where they, you know, hey, my sugar was this this time. I check my sugar every day. Or now with new technology, all the fun things they have where they have the RFID or the app where they can literally have the patch on, they can hold their phone up to it, and it'll check their blood sugar, or they have an insulin pump. All those different things can clue you into where they normally live, what do they normally beat. The the app thing, I know several people that have the apps, and those are awesome because they'll print out a little graph for you, mm-hmm. and they'll show you like, hey, this is what their sugar was when they ate this, and they can kind of, you can track it a little bit better. Is that something you all run into? dealing with those kinds of patients or these kinds of patients where they have complex emergencies because usually they're diabetic diabetes like the the opening door right for a lot of patients Mm -hmm. like they're okay you're diabetic and you're hypertensive now you're going to develop congestive heart failure or renal failure or what have you um not saying that always happens but it happens a lot are these patients y'all are concerned about or something like clues you in when you're still dealing with complex care my biggest concern Honestly, when I get to somebody who is a diabetic, is their perfusion status. Um, we've all seen sometimes people have these crazy high sugars and you give them, you know, two liters of fluid and that can drop their sugar pretty significantly too. And then, you know, if they're that fluid down, you give them that sub-Q dose, well, they're not perfusing very well. So that insulin's essentially doing nothing for you. And then when you get them a little resuscitated, then all of a sudden you've started your infusion and then bang, here comes your sub-Q dose on top of it, and you really have to – I'm really big on checking sugars more frequently than, than what's been told um, just because I've seen so many DKAs drop super fast, and then you get into a whole other set of weeds that you don't that you can avoid. Um, so my biggest thought on those is really perfusion status on those complex cases. That's the first thing that comes to mind every time for me. Yeah, perfusion is everything. When we're dealing with it, that's our first um, issue or point that we want to address initially anyway. What, okay, their sugar's high. How high? I don't care. I'm addressing other issues. Sugar is more of a long-term correction thing. I'm worried about their perfusion. Their anion gap's going to be real wide. They're going to be acidotic. These are the things that's going to kill them today. The high blood sugar is going to kill them way on down the road. 
I'm not worried about that right now. However, just like David said, you give some regular insulin. You put them on an insulin drip. Well, then somebody gives them sub-Q insulin too. Well, which insulin did they give sub-Q because of all the weird onsets and durations of action? And then you know it's going to be elongated because their perfusion sucks. As we correct it, they're going to start absorbing that. So now you got that complicating factor. And I just think of it as if you got sub-Q insulin, I'm going to have a headache dealing with it for 24 hours. And if you cover it for 24 hours, you're pretty safe to assume the only insulin they're getting is what I'm giving them now. Um, you work with me long enough, you know I have several pet peeves, but the the IV and sub-Q insulin, my head spins around at least three times when somebody says they did that. Yeah, that's one of the things I would caution to providers when you have these patients come in with crazy high sugars and you're thinking, well, we'll just get their sugar down and discharge them. Well, like, that's not really appropriate to give 10 units IV push. And then, you know, we've we picked up a patient one time where they gave 50 IV push and then all their goal was to discharge them. And then they got way sicker because of that 50 IV push as, as along with hypertonic and all that other stuff. But you know, something you really need to, you really need to be careful. It's not a quick fix. And, and remember the whole purpose of the Rubens cocktail. Um, I guess we should say a true Rubens is insulin, dextrose to counteract the insulin, calcium, and bicarb. That is a true Rubens. A true Rubens, everything is pushed. It's not mixed and infused over several hours. You're fixing a problem right now, the hyperkalemia. We're going to correct the sugar during this process, but that's not the goal. The goal is close the gap. And you can get their sugar down 150, great. They still got a gap, you still stay on the insulin infusion. You just add more dextrose to the maintenance fluids. You gotta get that gap closed. Having had that low pH, that gap closure is a must. It's amazing, people wake up. It's uh, quite profound. Yeah. Quite profound. Coming back to something you mentioned about insulins and sub-Q over 24 hours. So something, uh, I'm trying to keep it really generic because there are so many engineered insulins. Again, it, when, when I say engineered insulin, I'm talking <coughs> about the, the weird analogs that they call them now or the how long does this work to add some chemical to it. Me and Mark were talking earlier about chemistry, and it's not necessarily that the insulin is different or the drug itself is different in how it, physiology acts on the body, but it's more of what they put into it to preserve it or they may market it different or any of those different things, but it just, they just change the name of it so they can market it to a different group or a different provider group. When you think of the 24 hour rule, why, why makes you say 24 hours with perfusion versus most of the durations of 70, 30 or 50, 50 or 14 hours max? I guess it goes to, I am taking glargine or base of glar. And its duration, typical, is 24 hours in a normal perfusing person, okay? So if you have poor perfusion, you also have poor absorption. 
So that's going to extend the duration of action. If you have normal perfusion, you can count on 24 hours. Dosing of it on an everyday basis, most people take it every 24 hours. But studies have shown that at 12 hours, you lose a little efficacy. So I take mine, I take a large dose at night because that's when I'm awake. Then I take a smaller dose in the morning to make up for that 12 hours. And that covers me when I'm sleeping. Um, with like Degludec, I think I'm pronouncing it right, I'm not sure. It lasts at least 24 hours. Some people use it for several days. The U100, U300, U500, 500, all of those, the more concentrated it is, one would think you absorb it quicker or you absorb more. You know, if you absorb 0.1 mil over one hour, just throwing numbers out there, well, 0.1 mil of U100 is 10 units. 0.1 mil of U500 is 50 units. So you should be getting more. But because of the chemistry, the structure to make it stable, it inhibits absorption. So it's a stronger, but it's a smaller volume. So there's less room for receptors to get to. So it gets absorbed even slower increasing your duration of action it's like we were saying it's all playing with the chemistry of it and even injection sites um you do hip versus belly versus shoulder versus any yeah. of them can change especially like a lot of people use their abdomen right, right? a lot well and that's what you're taught that's what the yeah. diabetes educators teach but if i have a little more cushion in my abdomen versus in my hips that can slow your absorption rate because it's got to go through the subcutaneous fat right so all those different things and for those of you listening if you when we talk about u100 u300 u500 it's just the concentration of insulin it's still humulin it's still yeah. it, it's still insulin it's just how much of those insulin molecules are in certain amount of volume of solution so U500 is usually 500 units in one cc versus humulin 100 is 100 units in one cc when we talk about some of the common ones, so Lannis, 7030. When you talk about 7030, a lot of people think, okay, well, 70 is a better number for me. It's got to be more. To your point, it's not necessarily more. It may last longer versus human Lannis 5050 if you have that. Right. So it, the 5050, even though it's a less amount of insulin at that time, or receptor sites available. It's actually more receptor sites available, even though the concentration sounds less. Explain that right. Mm -hmm. Versus seventy percent is more insulin, but the same amount of receptor sites, so it's not going to be more. Right. It's not going to change your sugar any faster. And something to keep in mind for the providers: your combination insulins are not recommended for normal diabetes therapy. They're recommended for people um, that don't do a good job trying to take care of themselves. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of diabetics out there that 
they do everything possible. They try. They just have a difficult diabetes to control based on their body. Some people don't take care of themselves. And the people that are typically prescribed these combination insulins are the ones that don't try to take care of themselves. So the doctor's thinking, well, if I can get both drugs in in one shot, I stand a better chance of getting them to take one shot versus two versus three versus, well, you see how many times I have to stick myself a day. It's not a big deal to me. It's a tiny needle. I mean, skeeters hurt worse than that than that insulin especially the pterodactyls does. around here yeah but something to keep in mind when somebody's on that they have a um i don't know another way to say this a bimodal distribution you're going to get an initial onset and peak of action and then you're going to get a later because you got you have a rapid absorbing and a slow absorbing insulin mixed together and it confounds everything from a provider standpoint. I think of it more of when I see 70-30, immediately in my head I go, okay, 70-30, that's like rolling hills. So I get an initial peak, and then usually two to three hours later I'm going to get another peak where it kind of rolls up and gets again. Those are the ones that are really complex to me. So they say, okay, well, look, I know my glucose is high. It's 500 a day. I came to the ER. I'm in DKA. Well, we're going to go, and then we found out you have – renal failure and a few other things going on well yeah i i, I doubled my lens 30 70 30 today because i knew my sugar was high so and then they start playing this lab game we realize hey you're in dka you're in renal failure all these things and then you see one of us or a couple of us and we're like all right cool well when did you take your 70 30 oh well your blood pressure was 80 over 40 well they're not perfused so when i get your blood pressure up and i put you on that little norepi dose of five mics a minute and I start getting establishing perfusion, what's my peak really going to be? How far down the road am I going to play? And that's kind of bringing all this stuff together. We're talking about perfusion. How hard is it to manage these patients can be totally dependent on what they did and then each individual body. But Davis, to your point, you got to watch them. That's why it's important to recheck your sugars frequently. Because if you're dropping your sugar more than 100 an hour, you have an infusion that you can titrate. Regardless of what happened before, they're going to be on an infusion. I mean, you can cut it off if you want if they're dropping too much. But that's when you start adding in, like, okay, do we need some dextrose fluids going in here? Do we need to cut our infusion of insulin back to manage what's happening right now, regardless of what's going on? It just comes back to you got to check their sugars really frequently. And something else you mentioned when you initially talking about perfusion, every one of us is radial pulse, pedal pulse, right? Great. Now you have a 30-year long-term diabetic with purple feet on a good day. Don't, you know, keep in mind these people don't have normal perfusion on a good day, and we're seeing them on a bad day. When I have a bad diabetic, I think cap refill, and I think cap refill, like you said, most people give their insulin in their belly. So that's what I need to perfuse to figure out where they are. I check a cap refill on their belly. And that gives me an idea of perfusion. 
somewhat based on what insulin they're taking an idea of what is going to be my absorption rate what kind of time frames am i going to be looking at um distribution curvature i'm getting way off in the weeds on some pharmacology but like area under the curve how long am i going to be dealing with all this and everything diabetics have altered everything as providers we have to use altered everything to provide the best care for them you you got to get outside the box and think a little bit you bring it back to the standard every STEMI class I know you've taught I've taught everyone that Davis I know you've taught too you start going through differential diagnosis and you talk about special populations in patients. We teach this in our basic first responders, first hands class. Diabetics don't play fair. It's the line I always use, but it's the same with MIs. It's the same with strokes. It's the same with everything you can think of in emergency medicine. Insulin is no different. I know we're talking about the drug today and the <coughs> how it reacts with diabetics, but those patients don't play fair. So don't assume that every insulin is the same or every patient's going to react the same to that insulin. Right. There. Yeah, you, you can't, if you're in an ICU and you've taken care of the same patient for two or three days, you can kind of predict. But if you're in our world and you walk in and, Hey, I'm Mark, I'm Will, I'm Davis. You got to go with what you have in front of you, and it ain't a whole lot. No. The Another challenge that we deal with a lot with with insulins, understanding there's so many changing drugs, there's so many different drugs that are out there these days that is the patient a DKA, is it HHS, have they ever taken insulin before? When you see a wide gap, we all know we're going to insulin. You see that wide gap of 25. All right, so when you – for those of you listening, when we talk about gap, we're talking about positives minus negatives, and that gives you your gap. It's the easiest way I know to explain it as far as ions on your chemistry. When you look at an insulin and you say, all right, well, you're on, say it's somebody that is complex, and they're on Lannis, they're on a sliding scale of regular R when they last eight, and they're in DKA, and their sugar is 275. I picked that number for a reason, and I think both of you know where I'm going with it. The euglycemic DKA patients. So their sugar's normal. They're supposed to be on all these insulins. Oh, yeah, and they're on, I don't know, this handful of other little shots that they're doing experimental. They're on a SGLT2 or something else. When you think of those patients, they're like, all right, they're euglycemic DKA because their gap's 25. Does that change your management? Or does that change how much insulin you're thinking, hey, this patient really needs? Not really. I mean, because when you get to that point, let's, even if the, they come in and their sugar's 600 when you start, you get to eventually in their point where their gap will still be open and their sugar will be 250 or whatever. So it just comes down to your fluid management at that point. Because um, you're going to need to start giving them dextrose and you're going to need to give them insulin infusions and you just need to manage, you know, then your potassium, you get into the potassium realm where they start needing fluids with potassium. And so the management is the same. It's just a matter of where you start and how fast and how slow you are about it. Yeah. It, managing their potassium, protecting their heart against that, uh, 
closing that gap um, is everything. Are they going to need adjustments in most typically the SGLT2 inhibitor? Yes. Are we going to do that adjustment today? No. We're going to manage this just like we do every other ketoacidosis, um, whether alcoholic, starvation, whatever. Um, you're going to manage that the same, but you're, the problem is going to be on the internal medicine doc later who's going to manage this patient ongoing and, hey, we need to back off on this or we need to back off on this one, go up on this one. Um, another confounding factor is people wanting to use these SGLT2s to lose weight. It does cause some weight loss. Um, problem being with that, you said early, most insulin-dependent diabetics are diagnosed in childhood. Well, what do kids do? They eat, convert food into something else, and grow, right? So their insulin needs are constantly changing. Um, is it football season? Is it baseball season? Where, you know, you, you need a bigger carb load for football practice, football games, or you're a Nintendo gamer. You know, they're not going to need as much, even though they're growing, let's say, at the exact same rate. There's so many different things that you're trying to juggle on a daily basis um, that complicate matters way before any of us ever get involved. Then when we get involved, okay, what have you been doing? Are you trying to lose weight? So now we have this um, a problem that I ran into recently. They've got me on Victoza, which is one of the SGLT2 inhibitors. And it has a dual mechanism of action. It decreases gastric emptying rate and it decreases absorption in the duodenum. So you get a full feeling. Your body doesn't absorb all the nutrients. That's where your weight loss comes in, but it's also where your blood sugar control comes in. Leaves you feeling full. But if you're not absorbing all these nutrients, you feel hungry. Hungry and full to the point of nausea is a nasty feeling. And we did some juggling. I'm not going to say who we was, but we did some juggling and got everything correct. And it takes time to figure that out for each individual patient. And so it takes time for the patient to change, too. You can't expect, you know, most of the stuff we deal with, we do something we expect to change. This is stuff that okay, I'm going to do this. Now we got to give it a few days and see what happens. Then I'm going to do this and give it a few days. And that's, that's outside of our world. None of us think in those time frames. I don't want to speak for a lot of ICU nurses out there, but even in an ICU, you're still stinking 72 hours out. You're not thinking month. 
yeah. two months, three months, whatever your next follow-up is. Well, you got to think, too, they're closing the gap, right? You close it in the ER, in the ICU, whatever, and then you got to introduce a diet back into this patient's world, and then what happens? What? Why, why did they get in DK? Were they not eat, Were they eating too much, not taking their insulin? Is their insulin wrong for them? Like, it, it's a whole compound of factors that you got to think about where it's, you know, like you said, 72 hours out, when you close this gap and you introduce a diet, you need to think about what sliding scale am I going to put them on? Are we going to put them on a long-acting too? You know, it's all these factors that come into way. Which is yeah. why they get paid the big bucks, not me. Exactly. I, 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 I would rather, this is one of those, I would rather let somebody else make that decision because it is such a life, it's a lifestyle change for a mm-hmm. lot of people, especially new onset, but it's a lifestyle change even just changing your insulins up. And you've gone through it a lot in here recently, but yeah. changing your changing your medication when you talk about insulin for somebody at home is a big deal. So, so it's not something to me that should be done in an ER. It should be done with your primary care, whoever's going to follow you. Right. So when they say this, also brings up another subset of patients. You get some patients, and it happens a lot. I I, I won't say since COVID because it was happening before, but it happens a lot with COVID, especially. You get these patients, and they're coming to ER for primary care. That's their that's who's regulating their insulin. There was a patient in an area i used to work that literally came to the er and that they would change their insulin dose and that's Mm -hmm. because that was the only way they could adjust their sliding scale and what have you those patients are the ones that are super scary to me because they're all that we're trained to do is change a gap we're not or treat a gap we're not necessarily taught all the ins and outs of what can happen down there especially with all down the road with all these new drugs and what they what other side effects whether they're desired or Mm -hmm. not can occur from them and that's where it becomes into like with the primary care it's super important with the education factor of when you need to eat how long this insulin lasts like i had a guy come in one time that was on glipizide it wasn't managing his sugars appropriately so they added on insulin for him well he wasn't really educated on how to take it when to take it when to eat so he gets up takes his glipizide takes his insulin gets super hypoglycemic to the point where he can't remember if he took his meds took it again and you're in a whole different set of problems all because he wasn't educated on hey this is how you use this every day so that's really important too that they that the patient understands what they're taking and how to manage it and that's something a lot of we get put in that situation a lot i mean especially here but Mm -hmm. we get a lot of emergency providers get put in education hey they miss this education it's not necessarily my job to do the education make but make sure they get it from the right source that's appropriate source that's actually factual information not something they read on google or the internet, which a lot of diabetics I know go to, if you go to the right resources, the internet can be a great, if you have up to date available to you, it's awesome. That's where a lot of the content for this episode came from, honestly, because yeah. it's such a good database and such a good resource that provides holistic amount of information instead of, oh, well here I'm driving toward this drug or I'm driving toward this drug. There's no, there's no bias and in, influenced in it. Yeah. And the timing, you know, your short-acting insulins, um, what they call prandial or whatever, you're taught, take the insulin 30 minutes prior to eat. When I'm home, all right, get ready to fix something to eat, boom, I pop myself with my Novolog, start fixing the food and everything else. I'm eating in about 30 minutes. Well, you remember this from me coming to work. All right, I'll take my long-acting insulin, I'll take my Novolog, and I'll go grab something to eat, go on to work. I get here, I'm all shaky and goofy and everything because I got behind a wreck. So we had to alter that to go and take your long-acting, and I do not 
put short-acting insulin into my body until I have food in front of my face. And it's generally 15, 20 minutes. Do I get a little bit bigger bump in blood sugar after I eat than I should? Yeah. But hypoglycemia is a lot more dangerous than hyper. Um, but again, it's it, like David said, it's, it's managing and knowing, okay, if I take this, I need to be doing this at this time. I can expect this at this time. And if you learn those time frames, you learn better management as a patient. As a provider, you can kind of quiz them. When do you take your insulin? When do you eat? How much do you eat? Do you adjust your insulin based on what you eat? And that gives you an idea of whether this person is just not paying attention, not taking care of themselves, or they're rote following directions, but not tweaking. You know, in order to take care of yourself as a diabetic, you've got to tweak it. You got to tweak what you eat. You got to tweak what you take. And if you can't manage those together, you can expect problems, and we can expect to find those problems. Education is again, it's a big thing. Um, to the point, everything you read and up to date, everywhere else. Is, Somebody gets diagnosed with diabetes, first thing you do is send them to a diabetic educator. And basically, before the days of computers, the doctors would write the scripts, send that to the diabetic educator. You went to the diabetic educator. After they said you were good enough, they handed you the prescription so you didn't harm yourself. Makes sense to me. Let's talk a little bit about not only side effects of insulin, but some of the engineered ones specifically so the most common thing we worry about with insulin and why part of the reason brought up today and part of the reason why in every discipline of medicine you hear the word insulin it's like a red flag there's dual sign-offs and every electronic charting even before electronic charting you had to hey i need you to look at this this is a concentration this is the amount this is what i did i'm gonna label it it's one of the few drugs i think in er is actually still to this day gets labeled why insulin matters the biggest thing we worry about is obviously is hypoglycemic the one me and you dealt with which i honestly forgot until you brought it up was the 50 iv push was that appropriate did they meant to give five units and they just gave 10 times the amount i don't know i don't care i gotta deal with the patient in front of me now biggest thing we worry about is hypoglycemic what else could you worry about with insulin that bothers both of you i know in, in, in our world if they are overdosed or underdosed is there something specific it's on that you brought it up that IV push. I can't stand it. I really can't stand it because I mean, it'll, <laughs> I get the, I get the thought process behind it. You're in a super busy ER and you need the room and you just want to get the sugar down so that this patient can go home. But like, it's not what's best for the patient. Let's think about what they actually need here, you know, and, and it's compounded on like, well, are they in DKA? Is it HHS? Like that, that IV push can really screw you up managing down the road like like mark said earlier the the sugar yes it's a problem hyperglycemia is a problem but it's not uh let's fix this in an hour and send you on the way like this this is a patient that you're going to have to manage for a minute yeah how is it going to affect electrolytes you know not only what is our starting point from a sugar standpoint what is what's our potassium because we use it for that all the time 
what's our starting gap what's our starting sodium because you're gonna if you give a big huge dose um you know you can cause cerebral edema if you drop everything too fast Like David said, it, it's a long-term management thing, and I think people get way too wrapped around the axle about blood sugar. And yes, it's a big deal, but it's not... Blood sugar in itself is not an emergency. Another thing to think of is what is this person's set point? Whether we're talking sugars or anything else, you remember this with me, um... For the longest time, if my sugar got, when I got out of the hospital, my sugar got below about 150, I felt like death warmed over. I was truly, my brain was hypoglycemic. Um, I was at home once, checked my sugar, was 118. I said, told my wife, I just need to go lay down for a few minutes, take a nap. As I walked down the hall, I was bouncing off the walls like I was drunk. And she came back there to the bedroom, here, drink this big jug of orange juice. I said, my sugar's fine. It's 118. I don't care. Drink it. And anybody that's married knows that when your wife tells you to do something, thou shalt, you, by God, do it. And I took a big swig of it. About five minutes later, I felt great. I'm go check my sugar. It's 190. That was my set point. It took a while. There's no telling how long I walked around in DKA before we ever discovered it. Um, it took a while to get to where I felt okay in that 70 to 110 range. I still I feel best 100 to 150. And as long as I'm in that window, I'm happy. Honestly, especially at work, if it gets below 100, I start watching it close because I know I'm likely to teeter down. And if this person's set point that we're treating, if their set point's 2, 250, and we give them a big slug IV insulin, now they're all confused. Okay, wait a minute. Check their sugar. It's 118. Oh, well, that ain't it. Let's scan their head. So now we got increased cost to the patient, increased cost to the hospital. You pull somebody from the ER to take them to the CT scanner, all because you confused them because here's their set point instead of this textbook. Not everybody lives in the textbook. The thing, too, with, with patients when they get high blood sugars, if they're insulin naive, you don't know how they're going to react. So if you give that big slug of IV insulin, you may drop them seriously fast, seriously fast. And you get into cerebral edema and having to do the CT scans and all that stuff. So just, in my mind, just totally avoid it. Yeah. And my dad was one of those that literally you could show him a vial of regular insulin drop his sugar 100 points. Mm -hmm. And he was truly sensitive. He was Truly, they used the term brittle back then. I, if he took any insulin, the regular insulin, it was micro doses. That brings up two other points I wanted to make sure of. One was kids. So kids, I mean, you start that point one units per kilo per hour dose. We're all used to it. What's their metabolism rate? You get that kid with a really high heart rate. They're already sick from some of their insult. 
and they're in decay on top of it. So they had pneumonia. Well, then they didn't take their medicines like they're supposed to, and now they're in decay, and you get this complex patient. If their metabolism's up, and they still have the catecholamines left to throw everything in totally, not that I'm talking about a patient we had at all, totally in overdrive, you deal with a patient that's going to drop their sugar faster with the insulin you just gave them, and they will go from 300 to 220 minutes. So then now you're putting them on D10 or D12 and a half or D25, whatever you got to do to counteract it so you prevent that cerebral edema. Mm-hmm. Especially thing, kids. I mean, I can't tell you how many. It's, it's almost the majority of kids that I come in and immediately I check their sugar, what, they, what the hospital checked, what I checked, and I immediately cut the insulin infusion down, mm-hmm. which is why given that 10 unit or whatever IV slug, it can – can really set you behind the eight ball when it doesn't need to they you hear people say this around here all the time they didn't get in dka in an hour we don't need to correct it in an hour if you just take your time everybody does better it's easier on you as the as the provider it's easier on the patient's physiology it's just just slow down the other thing I want to bring up is trauma. <laughs> so you deal with patients that are, it's a traumatic <coughs> event, and you're talking about their normal. Well, their normal was 118, okay? They were in a traumatic event, chicken or the egg, did the their low blood sugar cause them to wreck, and now that's why we're seeing them, and they're altered. Okay, great. That's one thing. They're going to get the, you can't rule out a head bleed, so they're going to get the scans and all the stuff too. But does the traumatic event say it happened we're getting toward hunting season here around here and they don't get found for six hours. They fall out of a deer stand. Well, they are on, we'll say something easy, you know, nothing. One of the insulins that's uh, short acting relatively, but they didn't eat and they haven't eaten. And now they've gone through this metabolic event where everything got thrown in overdrive because they were hanging upside down for six hours. And now their sugar is 70. Well, yeah, that's in a normal range, but you get to them. They don't have their meds when they go hunting. Some pe- Most people don't carry the list, and I wish more people would put it in their phone of like, hey, I'm a diabetic, and this is what I'm on. But you may not know. So are you wrong to give them a little bit of D5 and bring them up, or are you wrong to assume that may be a problem? I don't think so. Um, again, it's chicken or the egg. The easiest thing to do is raise their blood sugar, see if their mental status improves. If it does, then we know that was it. If it doesn't, then we know we have to chase another rabbit. Um, That being said, current trends are putting people on insulin infusions, non-diabetics, after traumatic events because the body kicks into overdrive, trying to provide energy, glycolysis and, you know, increases everything else. And I see what they're doing. I understand it. Um, But I think it requires a much more delicate approach in the diabetic trauma patient versus the non-diabetic trauma patient because you just got all the other confounding factors on top of it. Yeah, you get into the same thing with, like, a septic patient, too. Yeah. You got to think about, like, yes, you may have a non-diabetic patient on a sliding scale that's in some type of severe sepsis, you know, insult. And it's just one of those things where, yeah, you need to think about it, but um, you got to be real careful about what sliding scale you use, you know. 
a lot of them, they're very complex. There's a whole, you can go on the internet and look all day, there's a whole different tables of they're going to do this for this insult or this for this. If you start with this creatinine, you're going to get this. And mm-hmm. it's a complex thing and not something to take benignly. It's also something not to miss. So if you're doing these interfacility ICD, ICU transfers and you're dealing with, I'm going to pick on the trauma patient since you brought it up, that's doing the glycolysis stuff where they're on insulin and usually D5. Okay, well, normally, I'll throw myself under the bus, if I walk in a patient's on a D5 maintenance infusion, the uh, first question I ask is, why are they on D5? The second question I'm thinking in the back of my head, I'm like, all right, I'm going to throw this in the garbage because I don't want to have any more infusions transporting somebody than I have to. Mm-hmm. So is this something I can turn off? Well, yeah, they're on that and they're on insulin at the same time or they're on a sliding scale of insulin, but they're on this D5 infusion at whatever maintenance rate they pick. Just shutting that off is something you can't just do. It's going to throw the body into such a metabolic nightmare. I think of it kind of like we do the um, the kids in DK. You got your D5 containing solution, D5 and a half, D5 normal, whatever flavor of the day, your insulin. This is over here. This is maintenance. All this is resuscitation. And I just, just separate it out and... This is what we got to have to maintain the status quo. This is what we got to have to fix whatever it is we're trying to fix. And it, if you keep it separated, I think it simplifies it. Yeah, we're dealing with more bags and drips and pumps. But, well, you and I have done this. The pumps that we're going to be playing with are going to be sitting in front of us. The ones that are maintenance, we got them sitting way over here. And it, it's for that reason of leave this alone let's fix everything via this mechanism over here that patient situation specifically i mean you should do it on every patient but that patient specifically it's important to get a history you know get whatever nurse or physician you're getting a report from it's really important to ask you know why why are they on this is it something we can throw in the trash can to save a line or is it something we need and hopefully you know you can get a good story it doesn't always happen that way but so I want to talk a little bit about specifically SGLT2s. The reason why is they've become so popular now. Uh, we dealt with a case as a program, was that three years ago? Yeah. Where we had an HHS case, and it was due to SGLT2s. But it, it provided education for our entire team. It was just a unique case, and patient was HHS, and it's purely because of this. When you think of SGLT2s, couple things I think of unique uses for them they they do great for diabetics for a lot of times they also do well for other patients you're trying to manipulate their metabolism or you're trying to manipulate their function as far as their kidney function liver function all those fun things cardiac patients have become where they are on them all the time trying to improve their cardiac output and part of the side effects of it is it reduces preload and it reduces afterload. So in theory, your heart can work better. Now it's in conjunction with all the other fun heart failure medications that are out there. Uh, these are usually the patients that are on a uh, sac full of meds, mm-hmm. I believe is the technical term. But when you talk about these patients, again, it's not a drug you can just throw away. It's not something you, hey, you need to ask somebody, all right, well, you're a diabetic and you have been diagnosed with congestive heart failure. You get that interfacility transfer and the diagnosis list is half a page and then you get the med list, it's five pages, and you're like, all right, what out of here actually matters? 
and you go through and you look up and you see uh, Invocana on there, which the other name I'm going to try to say this appropriate, Canaglyphosin. That's what I'm going to go with. Most of them end when Flosin. That's how I remember them. Um, but Invocana is a pretty popular one. I've seen a pretty good bit. Mm-hmm. Why are they on Invocana? Well, they're on metformin Invocana, and they're on a sliding scale of insulin. That doesn't necessarily mean to me when I only see those three, I'm like, all right, well, those usually don't go together. They sometimes do, but they don't always. Why are they on the Invocana? That's something else you need to relay as far as transferring a patient, whether you're picking them up from home or you're doing this interfacility or scene or whatever and you're dealing with us. Hey, they're on Invocana. They're on something. I don't know why. It may be some other reason. It may be for cardiac index or maybe for renal perfusion, but they they're on a SGLT2 SGLT2 for a reason. We need to continue that when they go to the ICU because most of these patients we're talking about are the ones that are they're getting flown or down the road. They're maybe sitting in the ER for 24 hours. Hey, you can't miss a dose of this because it will, or especially a couple of doses, it will change their entire world. Is that something that y'all have run into, or is that something that? as far as Invocana or any of the other ones y'all are seeing more and more of those is that just me I think it's becoming more common it's becoming more of a mainstream thing in your uh, poorly controlled CHF patients and you say oh you're a diabetic and they look at you crazy and then you okay that my first encounter with this was Somebody looked at me crazy, you know, okay, let me go. And I got digging through up to date and like, okay, they're using this for cardiac function. Yeah, you got to keep an eye on their blood sugar. Um, most of these drugs do more of a stabilizing blood sugars by uh, inhibiting glycolysis. And then the whole, you know, like I talked about with Victoza, um, decrease your gastric emptying, decrease the um, absorption duodenal. So they don't have a huge effect on blood sugar. You're typically not chasing sugars when you run into this. If you see a combination in their own glucophage 2 or metformin, other name, okay, this person's probably a type 2. Um, or they may be like me, they have, they're a type one, but they have this tiny, tiny bit of pancreatic function. So we're going to kick this in too. Just, just remember, just because you see insulin doesn't make this patient a type one diabetic. So type two diabetics, your CHF patients on one of these inhibitors. Yeah, you may see some blood sugar issues, but don't get all wrapped around the axle about the blood sugar that's typically not the issue that we're dealing with here i think we're going especially in this area we have so much chf i think we're going to see more and more of it as a function of it becomes more mainstream and cost Uh, i think cost is going to be the prohibitive prescribing yeah yeah, that that's that's what's going to drive whether it spreads or not um for an example i found this out 
through a letter from our insurance company that Victoza out-of-pocket cost is $1,290 a month. Most people aren't going to pay that, whether they have it or not. Rich folks are going to say, no, I ain't paying that. I'll take something different. But I think as it becomes more mainstream on the CHF population, I think that will drive the cost down a little bit. I think a prohibitive factor is these drugs can promote, I say can, not will, promote weight loss. And I think they're being... For the same reason it, they're used for cardiac index, yeah. cardiac output. It yeah. increases your metabolism, increases everything else, drops your preload, drops your afterload, the, and it helps to vasodilate. All that stuff contributes to weight loss, too, yeah. when you increase your cardiac output. The, the scariest scenario for me is you have somebody that's prescribed one of these, and they're like, okay, well, great, it's working. They get it the first couple of weeks, and they've lost 5 or 10 pounds. I'm just picking numbers out of my head, folks. Yeah. But they, pick, they, they take this for two or three weeks, see these great results. Well, now I'm just going to take more, right? Because that just – it works the same way. Yep. And then you end up with this patient that – does have this weird reaction whether it's they're hypoglycemic and they start playing with blood sugar numbers or they have this they throw a i'll throw a cocaine mi picture at you mm-hmm. they have a cardiac workload that's just too hot and it's giving too much on well, now they get the red flush skin their distal extremities are you know increased poor function <coughs> increased function all these different things and they're they didn't have that before was well, that because they lost weight or is that just because of the the effects of whatever they've been taking. Do you think, do y'all think that will be this scenario I'm bringing up? Do you think that's a problem? Do you think it could occur? I mean, anytime you just stop a medicine, I mean, it goes back to the education deal. Like, you know, like let's say you lose the five, 10 pounds and then you're just like, okay, I've, I've reached my weight loss goal and I'm going to stop. That's kind of what scares me. Cause that, that's what I picture this going on. Right. Like you got somebody that's trying to make a weight for whatever, and they get to their goal and they say, okay, I'm done. Well, what happens now? You know, like, does their body just say, all right, well, that's not there. I'll go back to normal. No, that's not what happens. You know, it's, it goes back to the education of why are you taking it? How can you stop taking it? Is it something that you need to taper off? You know, that's, it, it's, it's a really a, a function of a primary care provider to educate how to take it, when to stop, how to stop, because that's something that's just as important as taking it. Yeah, it's, all those drugs are a, uh, they're a taper-up drug and they're a taper-down drug, and it's it's an induced ketosis. So you're inducing a potentially complicated medical condition to for, lose weight. For, I would say for a desired outcome. Yeah, Is that- so, yeah, you're getting this desired outcome, but it's not free exercise and a diet. Luckily, uh, most people that subscribe to the true weight loss program through one of these things, um, they take it once a week. And that kind of goes to the duration that I was talking about earlier. That simplifies it a little bit because it's not playing with your blood sugar that much. It's just that induced ketosis. They just want that little bit of... uh, Starvation ketosis is what it's called in the in the textbooks, um, but like David said, oh hell, 
losing weight. Well, I don't want to OD myself. I'll just take it twice a week. Oh, well, that's even better. Hell, now I'll take it once a day. Next thing you know, they're in the ER. That brings a lot of these a lot of these insulin patients. And the reason I wanted to call it insulin is they are on so many different things for different reasons. They play this cocktail game, if you will. But everything we keep saying it over and over again, it's based off of history. It's understanding a good patient, being able to talk to the patient or talk to their family or use the med list clues like we all do all the time, but to figure out, hey, how did they get here? How did they get in front of me in an emergent situation or a resuscitative situation? Did they change their diet? Did they change, oh, well, great, I'm on Invocana, or I don't know which one they're prescribing the most for weight loss, but if they're on Invocana, great. Well, they haven't eaten in five days because of the starvation ketosis. Well, now they just threw themselves into all kinds of fun things. And they're in renal failure because they haven't drank enough water and they're hyper K. The one, the one I have seen in the ER recently was a hyperkalemic patient that was on Invocana. And that was because they weren't drinking water. They were working out. They weren't drinking water. They basically threw themselves into a modified rhabdo because of this drug because they're trying to lose weight. That's part of the reason I wanted to do this, this episode specifically is just the awareness of, hey, these drugs are out there. They have these great, wonderful resources that are awesome, but they need to be used to your point or both of y'all's point carefully it's not something you just do another thing as you mentioned all that um i know one of the regimens they take the drug once a week and the regimen itself they take the drug once a week they take a shot of vitamin b12 once a week to kind of make up but then the regimen itself pushes a lot of protein Okay, great. You're getting calories on board, but what does high protein cause? Renal failure. So, it just like everything else in life, it's a juggling act. Problem being, most of the world can't juggle. Especially not more than three things at once. Yeah. So, guys, appreciate anything else you want to add talking about insulin in general? No, I just feel bad for the hospitalist managing all these uh, oh, medications, God man. The continuing of the med list is tough, and I get it. <laughs> well, and figuring out what's current, what's not current, what did they get filled? Because Meemaw can only, she only has X amount of money in her budget for drugs for the month, so what does she view as the most important? What does she get filled? Or... Uh, early on in COVID where shipping was a huge problem. Oh, yeah. You know, and you get somebody in a small town that goes to a small town family-run pharmacy, they don't have enough purchasing power to get everything filled. So now we're, we're, we're going to substitute drugs. X with Y. And yeah, it's kind of like after Katrina, we, we flew a ton of folks from the coast after Katrina not for anything directly related to Katrina, but lack of access to their medications and deterioration in their chronic conditions. These people were sick as stink simply because they couldn't get their prescription. They tried to take care of themselves, but couldn't get their hands on it. I almost forgot to bring this up, and I'm glad you said Katrina. The other thing that 
a lot of people may not know if you're not around it all the time, a lot of these insulins specifically have to be refrigerated. Well, power outages happen all the time, along with most natural disasters around here, so tornadoes, hurricanes, and all those fun things, but flooding, what have you. If their insulin stays out of the fridge too long, like we carry it on the aircraft every day, but if it's out of 28 days, we chuck it. Same with all this stuff. If it's out of the fridge for so long of a period of time, it doesn't stay normal thermic, like it wouldn't in August in Mississippi ever. <laughs> uh, that medicine is not going to work as effectively. It's it's effective time of onset. It, while normally it does this to the patient's body and their metabolism and everything else, now it may not do that. It may not be near as effective as it used to be. I can tell you this from experience. I grab a fresh bottle of Nova, and I do the same thing with my personal insulin that we do on the aircraft. Keep it out for a month. And I've used it up by a month anyway, so it's all good. I can grab a fresh vial of Novolog, and I can take a normal dose with a normal meal for me, and I'll have to be snacking in two or three hours. Fast forward a week, I still got plenty of Novolog left in the vial, I can take that same normal dose, eat that same normal meal, and I'm good. And I can watch it on my Libre, and you can see the, a bigger bump as as we get lower in that bottle of Novolog, because I don't put it back in the refrigerator every time I give myself a shot, that bump gets a little more. Fresh bottle, bump kind of flattens out. And I had a doctor's appointment this morning. We were actually looking at that, and I for once, entered the date in my phone of when I pulled the fresh bottle out, and I'm like, yep, that's the difference between a fresh bottle and a bottle that's... It still kept it control room temp. I don't leave it in the truck or anything like that, um, but refrigerated versus control room temp. Guys, appreciate it. I'm going to put this chart on the video. We'll show you just a little bit about long-acting, short-acting insulins and what their duration really is. We've all got it sitting here in front of us, but just looking at it real fast, you've got the rapid onset. If you're doing inhaled insulin, which I don't know anybody that really does that outside of the ICU, and that's a very, very rare, weird scenario usually. It never gained favor. Cost, and you can't adjust it per, it's like an MDI. Um, you can't adjust it like per unit. It's I forget the graduation. So you're either underdosing or overdosing. And then if you got any lung issues, hey, it's this is perfusion again. I, the thing I thought, of, yeah, no. I was gonna say that the thing I've when you talk about inhaled insulin, I was like, all right, well, the new aerogen we're getting used to. Yeah. All right, well, yeah, you can kind of induce it what that was so dang funny you, <laughs> dude i'm never gonna inhale insulin to anybody on that <laughs> I, well, I, I was gonna say that, yeah, that I've, I've done some crazy <laughs> in that aircraft <laughs> nebulizing insulin ain't one of them <laughs> i mean i could see uh, i could see somebody doing with a, with an aerogen like we have on the airframe now but I, or not on the airframe all the time but I, I don't understand with an NDI using inhaled insulin. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, think about, you know, like I said, the lung problems. All right? And you develop vision problems. You said you were blind as a bat before mm -hmm. you got them glasses. And let's say these MDIs are reasonably close in color. And 
I'm wheezing. And you start pumping away, thinking you're giving yourself albuterol. Next thing you know, you're out on the floor with a blood sugar 20. You know, I mean, it's, it's just not safe. I mean, <laughs> think about common sense says, no, don't do this. Going down the list on this chart, you got <laughs> rapid onset, which is one of those. The short, regular U100s, which is what we're pretty well used to. Um, some of the longer acting like Detamir, um, Gargine, all those different things. The chart's really good. It shows you how long it's really going to stay in the body. So how long are these things going to really last? Uh, again, that high molecular load, what it's really going to take for the body to metabolize them out. It's a really good, to me, it's, and Mark found it, it's a really good visualization of what we're talking about, of how long things are really going to stay in the body and how long it's going to stay there. Well, guys, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming today. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.